0: This is my journey. Inspired one story at a time, a library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created. To listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Welcome to another episode of Profiles and Leadership. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, and today our guest is Ashley Trout. Ashley is a business owner and a winemaker at Brook and Bull and also the nonprofit winery Vital Wines. She began working in the wine industry at 18 years old. Early on, she would uh, go between Walla Walla, Washington and Mendoza, Argentina to learn her craft and gain experience. You know, I first met Ashley when she was probably 21, 22 years old. And during the interview, we talk about uh, uh, Chuck Reiniger, who owns uh, Reiniger Winery in Walla Walla. And uh, I know his brother Rick really well. And so uh, we were over there at the winery and, and um, having great time. And he said, hey, I want you to meet somebody. Um, and so we went across the street uh, to this uh, other place. And here was this uh, young woman uh, sitting on the floor Uh, talking to a friend and he said I want you to meet Ashley Trout Uh, she makes uh, amazing wines herself and uh, she's gonna she's gonna have an amazing career in the wine industry and I always remember seeing her there and meeting her and she she was just so kind and and uh uh, you just had this vibe about her that 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 just um you know you knew she was going to be great and and here she is all these years later doing great things in the wine industry so I always remember that story as uh uh, I was so, uh, so uh, excited to reconnect with her and so excited to have her on the program. She has two young children and a husband who is also a winemaker uh, with another winery, and they have two dogs and live in Walla Walla, Washington. So let's just jump right into the interview and uh, talk to somebody that, uh, that I admire a lot, and uh, I couldn't wait to talk to you. Ashley, welcome to the program. It's so great to have you today.
1: Thanks for having me, Steve. I'm looking forward to it.
0: So, my first question: How does someone get started in the wine business when you're only 18 years old?
1: <laughs> and that's really just right, right place, right time. Um, I think when you look back at the history of any industry that grows as quickly as the Washington wine industry did, it relies heavily on 18, 19, 20 year olds who are you know willing to just show up and do and go and uh that that was me in walla walla in 99 and it's about that simple
0: (laughs) so did you live in walla walla or did you go to walla walla to be in the wine business
1: uh neither i grew up in washington dc with tidbits of la and i understood cities and so i wanted to use college as an excuse to go to a small town and see something different and I knew that there weren't jobs in small towns, so I would inevitably graduate from college and go to a big city and get a real job, and that was the, that was the plan, but I got sidetracked by falling in love with this part-time job that became a full-time job that became a career.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Now, your first mentor, I think, was Chuck Reiniger at uh, Reiniger Winery. Yep. And what did you learn from him that, um, that still serves you well today?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, Lots, lots and lots. Um, You know, with a small business, any small business, um, you're, you're a jack of all trades as the owner. So you're doing the winemaking, you're doing, you know, walking people through and teaching them about what you do. And you're, managing your staff and you're um, dealing with the finances and you're dealing with the website, you name it. Right. And I think Chuck took all of that with n- not just grace, but enthusiasm at every level. And um, just, uh, you know, that for sure. And, and kindness throughout, you know, he's just such a good guy. Um, and that goes a long way uh, because, Inevitably, small businesses hit speed bumps, right? And and intrinsic to how uh, a small winery or any small business is run, you are inevitably not going to have people hired to do niche positions that they are an expert at. Instead, you've got like two or three people, and somewhere somebody's going to be doing something that really they shouldn't have been hired to do, right? Because everybody's got to do everything. Um, and so I think having learning from him, the, the grace of, uh, uh, understanding that at every turn and that we're all in this adventure together and that's part of the fun, right? Um, and, uh, so that was certainly a a big part of it. But then also just that Chuck was a, a mountain guide for a long time and, um, how he took that and transferred it into winemaking in the sense that once it's harvest there you are, right? Like you're, you're halfway up a mountain and, the, and there you are. There's ah, no, yeah.
0: now what do you do? Right. Now what do you do?
1: Right. <laughs> and, and so sort of the, the mental bandwidth and physical bandwidth to just Europe for the long haul and, um, where something's going to go wrong midstride, and that's okay too. Um, I would say those are the the biggest lessons that I learned from Chuck
0: so now you're working uh, at Reiger wines and uh, as, as a young woman, and I'm just so intrigued with uh, how at such a young age uh, did you have the confidence and tenacity uh, to start your own wine company I mean um, you, you just how did you just jump into the fire. <laughs>
1: Jumping into the fire is not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Not jumping into the fire is the problem. Uh, Yeah, no, I'm uh, an adventurous sort. The, The problem with all good entrepreneurs is that we're not planners, and we didn't foresee how difficult it would really be.
0: I can only imagine.
1: Yeah, I think that's what it takes in order to bite those, you know, big chunks off.
0: Yeah, and so when you started your first, when you left Reiniger Wine or maybe had the side project with your first winery, uh, how old were you? 24. 24, okay. So that's uh, that's, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I mean, that a lot of people don't start their own businesses at 24, so that's impressive.
1: Well, kind of. I mean, I think when you look at the history of like Silicon Valley recently is a a good example to look at. When you look at who is really making these monumental pivots in the industry and taking the major risks, it is the 20-year-olds. Because honestly, you've got nothing to lose. You know, you don't have your reputation to lose. You don't have your house to lose because you don't have a house right you don't have (laughs) whatever it is you you don't have you're not have you are not you know your husband or wife isn't losing their mind with fear because there is no husband or wife right i mean i think there's a lot to be said for underestimating the power that is the the young adult um there's something to that
0: yeah that's 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 a really good point now, before you jumped into the to, to your own business, um, I know that you're a very outdoors and athletic person, and I believe you had a very serious climbing accident uh, around the age of 22. I, I think. Can you share with us what happened and and how you regained your health after that?
1: Yeah, and it was all somewhat related. Um, I I had a rock climbing accident where I free fell about 35 to 40 feet, and. Um, I broke a lot of bones and I was out my fifth harvest. So that would, that was with, uh, uh I would have been working with Chuck that year. And, um, and I, miss that harvest. And I was getting my body back, uh, kind of as the Southern Hemisphere was coming online. So the Northern Hemisphere grape harvest is September, October, November, and the Southern Hemisphere is February, March, April. And um, my accident was in late July. And so I was able to go down to the Southern Hemisphere in Argentina. And I was really itching to be productive again after having not used my body for so long. Um, and so I went down there and I, I started working the harvest in Argentina every year. And I started flying trout, my last name's trout. And it was in reference to flying between Argentina and Walla Walla. That was that first brand, okay. that first winery. And uh, so I started it just because, you know, that's, that's what I was doing anyway. So I, I wanted the creative control and I wanted to sort of step it up a notch and see what the, what the whole package looks like if you sort of made it official, you know?
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So you had a lot of rehab and, and got back and, um, and then, uh, so did you make it down to South America then after that?
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: That's great. Now, part of your education and experience involved in going to Mendoza, Argentina, you know, for half the year, what, what are the, what are the influences from that part of the world in South America that you um, that you gained and you feel is, is added to your uh, skill as a winemaker?
1: Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. Um, I would say most of the influence and education that I received down there had um, more to do with life um, than winemaking. But on the winemaking front, it was um, pretty fascinating because for the most part, You've got much bigger wineries. Um, those wineries down there tend to want to rely on the export market uh, because many countries that they export to are richer than, Argenti- than Argentina and Argentinians. And so, in order to get that economy of scale to export your wines, you've got to be a little bit bigger. Does that make sense? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna make 10,000 cases of one wine or 20,000 cases of one wine. That's a whole different ball game than what we had been playing around with in, in Walla Walla in, you know, 2002. Right. Um, and so it was fun. It was kind of fun to see, the i think everybody should experience the job that teaches them they never want to do that job again <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? yeah. uh and that that was it for me you know it was a little wine by numbers because and wine by lab because not not that you're sticking weird ingredients in there but you're testing the numbers of your you know your acid your sugar your your va your ph your your whatever and um you're testing it all the time because all the numbers need to work not perfectly, but certainly within the the appropriate range um, because it's too much wine to have go bad. Whereas in a small winery, it's a lot more sort of artistic farmery craftsman type way of checking on your wines because it's very easy to touch base with, fewer wines. Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: that, that does. That's really interesting. Now, you also mentioned life. What did you learn about life in Argentina?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, I you know, I came from D.C., Washington, D.C., which is a very type A city-city. And um, what I loved about Argentina is I was witnessing all of these 20-something and 30-something-year-olds who very much um, integrated their friends and their family into Wednesday or Saturday. And Sunday everything shuts down because you're supposed to go hang out with your family. I mean the grocery stores shut down halfway through the day because it's Sunday. you know you you need to get your priorities straight and go, be on a lawn with family members. Um, and there was something about that, that, um, really impressed me that there's, um, just sort of a nod to humanity and, and community that, um, I didn't grow up with that. I've don't think I've ever totally lost. I've, I've always kept a little bit of that, um, because it's, it's nice.
0: Did you ever consider staying in Argentina and, and oh, starting one country? I would have loved country? that. Yeah.
1: I would have loved that, yeah. And and I certainly considered going through the master's program down there. They've got some really good programs down there. Um, ultimately, it was fun for me to work both harvests, and, uh, and so I kept going back and forth. It was less of a six-month. I, I wasn't ever in Mendoza for six-month increments. It was always shorter than that, usually about six weeks. Um, but boy, it's a, it's a place that I do love.
0: Yeah, it is a beautiful place in the world. That's for sure. You know, the, the wine business is a really male dominated industry. So how do you break through that? And what challenges have you had as a woman, uh, winemaker and business owner?
1: yeah, those are two very different questions. I mean, how you break through that is is a whole different question. As far as the challenges, I would say um, the the highs are higher and the lows are lower. Uh, so it's not that it's easier to be a female winemaker or or harder to be a female winemaker. Um, it's just different. Um, and and what I mean by that is. Um, I think when you're dealing with anything that is as artistic as winemaking is, it really is good to be able to touch base with your community and have connections um, that are able to bounce off just talk about your wines and and talk about your product. And it's everything, you know, the bottle, the corks, the capsules, the labels, the vineyards, the fermentation process, you name it. And so to have that community um, is very helpful. And I think it's a little bit harder to have that community when you're female. So one one example is my husband is also a winemaker. And um, long story short, a whole bunch of guys who I – Knew better than my husband knew. We're going out for like a ski weekend um, or a weekend out in the cabin, and they invited him and and not me. And um, it's just because it was a guy's weekend, you know. Yeah. And um, so you miss out on stuff like that um, a little bit, and uh, and so the the lows are lower. Also, I think I I got a lot of really good accolades um a couple of years back and that was a big turning point but before I got those accolades um it was almost like people were not ready to believe that this was a winery of substance in a way that I, I don't see that happen with male run wineries they sort of hit the ground and and should be taken seriously and are taken seriously um, and I didn't see that as much on my side, um, until we got those accolades and, uh, my general manager at the time so embarrassingly blew up this huge poster of one of the accolades and I was mortified and she just <laughs> said, this is not an option. We are putting this up, you know, and, um, and she was right. It just, it sort of changed everything, but, um, So that's one thing, but then on the positive side, you know, you do get, you do get, and you, you're an example, right? You do get more interviews. You, there's, there's more to talk about. We've gotten so much more press, so much more easily. Um, and when there are 900 wineries in the state of Washington, being able to be a needle in the haystack is uh, incredibly helpful.
0: Yeah. Well, that could just, uh, that could also be about you, not just that you're a woman, but you're, uh, you're a, a great uh, relationship builder and, and very uh, easy to talk to. So that's probably part of it as well.
1: Well, you're kind. Thank you.
0: And so we ta- you talked about the challenges, and you said the breakthrough is a different story. So, so how do you break through then?
1: Yeah, one thing, not to get too down the rabbit hole and, and nitty gritty, but one thing you find in the wine industry is women get, pigeonholed into working in the lab very often. So they're either in marketing and sales, or if you're really, really adamant about being in production, uh, you wind up sort of getting stuck in a lab because the lab work is not very physical. You don't need to weigh a lot. You don't need to be very tall. You don't need to be able to push or pull, you know, tonnage. Um, And a lot of us don't want to be in a lab. That's very different from the whole that's very nichey, right? right right um and uh so i think being forceful enough to prove that you can do whatever it takes to drive a truck that's massive or to forklift something or to you know push or pull something it's um that's where it's a little bit hard to, to break through. And so many wineries, it's a very different job working in a small winery than a big winery. And I think you're really one type of person or another. Um, it's kind of like working for a small business versus working for corporate. Sure. Um, yeah. and, I, and I think that the small businesses, it's very hard if you're only hiring two people for one of those people to weigh 110 pounds. Yeah. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And what advice would you give a young woman who has a dream to do what you've done and, and, and to do what you've accomplished?
1: Learn how to drive a forklift.
0: <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs>
1: um, yeah. And, and I also think, um, I think that with any section of life, there are plenty of fights you could pick. Uh, there are plenty of ways you could be disgruntled, and there are plenty of slights you could find. And you're not wrong, right? I mean, those, those are out there, but um, it's kind of a waste of time. Uh, so I think being oblivious is incredibly helpful. Just power through forward motion um, and, and let the actions and the, the results uh, speak for themselves. And then, you know, that way, whatever fights may or may not have been picked or existed along the way didn't slow you down.
0: Now, you uh, sold your first winery, Flying Trout, right? What, when was that?
1: Yeah. So I started Flying Trout in 2006 and sold it in 2010 and stayed on as the winemaker for about five more years after that.
0: And so, what was your strategy on, on that and why did you make that decision?
1: Well, part of it was, I was, uh, this sort of circles back to the very beginning of our talk. I was 24 when I started it, and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and so there were a lot of um, structural, financial ways that that business was being run, that it was it, it was having that jolt of... Um, sort of financial stability behind it and, and rearrangement um, was incredibly helpful to the brand and a relief. Um, and I, it, that was sort of that whole winery was my MBA. Um, and then the other part of it was I did want to have kids at that point. So I was 29 maybe. Um, and I, knew how much a small business, how much effort a small business took. And I could only guess that a small baby would also take a lot of effort. And I, I kind of couldn't do both things at once. Um, so as not the owner, I, um, I got to, to just do the winemaking part, which was really, really fun and have two kids. And then once the kids were sleeping through the night years later, I realized that um, I could take those lessons that I had learned in sort of that MBA format and um, really launch a couple of brands that that I was much happier with in terms of how they functioned as companies.
0: So now uh, that that winery is called Brook & Bull. So uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and what, what's, what's your idea for that business going forward and what are you trying to do? Uh, uh, what does success look like with that winery?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well part of what success looks like with that winery is um work smarter, not harder. Um, you know, the wine industry um is uh you've got a lot of cash flow tied up for so many years before wine is even released, and that's if you've done everything perfectly, right? Um so we're not just selling widgets that can turn and burn in the course of 30 days. Um so uh, a big part of that is how do I do all the artistic things that I want to do but um, not have, but, but have a lot of efficacy built into how we run the company. Uh, so that was that was a big part of it. Um, and um, what we, what Brook and Bowl sort of stands for and what we're trying to create are wines that are with a low oak profile, um, but incredibly high end wines. I think so often, especially in the new world and in the United States, you see the expensive wines and the really nice wines have a lot of oak on them. And, um, that's not necessary. Uh, those two don't need to go hand in hand. You can have a really gorgeous wine, that, that has low to no oak, and um, so that's a little bit of what we're playing with. And then the other thing that I like to highlight with brook and bull is vintage variation. I think, you know, we're not Budweiser. It doesn't need to be the same from year to year, and I think there there is something so beautiful about being able to showcase what nature did um and how it did it differently from one year to the to the next and i think when you when you highlight the best of each vintage you make a better wine uh, as opposed to trying to turn everything into the same thing and and fight fight those forces Um, so really highlighting vintage variation and and low oak is what we're what we're focused on
0: yeah that's fascinating now, tell us a little bit about the name, Brook and Bull. So where did that come from, and how did you come up with the name for the winery?
1: Yeah, well, I had sold Flying Trout with you know my last name being Trout, and so I, I didn't want to step on their toes. But at the same time, um, only 4% of women winemakers own their wineries, and so I think it's really important that if you own it, you get your name on there, and um, not just for yourself but for any future ladies who – want to get into the wine industry and and want uh, um, sort of an example of the fact that it's doable right and you can take ownership and you can be proud of that situation and so I wanted to sort of sneak my last name in there somehow so brook trout and bull trout are two different kinds of trout so that's sort of the the secret.
0: Do you think that that uh, uh, Americans are, are willing to pay more for a premium wine these days? Is that changing or, or do you think there's still a, a resistance to do that?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, overall, Americans are absolutely um, willing to play, pay more for premium wines. You've seen um, about... 30 consecutive years of wine consumption growth in the United States. Uh, and and um, there's a trajectory that comes with that. So at first, you know, it's a lot of white Zen and <laughs> terrible, terrible reds and cheap whatever in the 70s. And then all those people grow up and, and get better palates. And then they raise children who are, are never exposed to the lowest of the low because that's not an option in any of those households. And the, the consumption just sort of gets more sophisticated as time goes on and, and almost never does it go backwards. Right. Um, and so you, you have an old enough drinking population, wine drinking, wine consuming population and, and multiple enough generations that Um, we are a wine drinking country now. Uh, it's official. And, um, so yeah, I I do think you see people are really willing to, um, honor it and, and, um, spend, spend some money, but really appreciate wines. And then the pandemic just threw that into very high gear. People wanted not just wine but they wanted something really 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 nice to happen to their day um, and that was that was nice wine
0: so you're one of the businesses that actually uh, did pretty good during the pandemic.
1: We did. Yeah. And, and, you know, looking back on it, it makes a lot of sense. But in the time when the pandemic started, we didn't know, you know, we had no idea what was, what was about to happen. Um, But yeah, we, we did fine.
0: And I I don't want to get into your uh, uh, business here too much. So I'm not asking you to tell us uh, what your profit is, but I've, I've also heard a lot that a lot of people say, well, I go into the wine business because uh, I love the atmosphere, and I love the ambiance, and I love the the, the the feel of it, so to speak, but it's not a place to make money. So how do you make money, and how do you make it profitable for uh, for a career um, uh, endeavor?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, three quarters, I, I'm not positive that this statistic is true, because it was told to me by somebody who should know, but at this point, I'm now quoting somebody who quoted somebody. Three quarters of... Uh, all wineries never make a profit uh, was the statistic I was told. And I'm not shocked by that. Um, So um, on average, it takes a winery about seven years to turn a profit. Um, And that's if you're doing everything right. I I think that so often people come from other industries where they have been successful um, and they are pretty confident. And they come in kind of guns a blazing, and then realize when it's too late that they were a little too confident, and <laughs> yeah. and they are now not going to turn a profit. So, um, and and I think what's deceiving about the wine industry is everything is so sort of luxury and beautiful and and high priced and this that, and the other that you just assume money is flowing everywhere, right? Um, but when you combine the fact that nature is involved, and um, and you're waiting so so many years for, for those bottles to hit the shelf and start selling, and the the chemistry and the biology and the art that is involved with grape growing and grape plant grape uh, grape growing and winemaking have not a lot to do with each other. And then you layer on top of that, the the financial modeling and sort of that type of brain. It's, it's almost mutually exclusive. The person who can do great financial modeling is not the person you want making your wine. I I guarantee it. Right.
0: Different, different Um, sides of the brain. They're working on
1: totally different sides of the brain. And so um, it, you've got, even though it's a small business and a small company and a small winery, you you have to have access to very different brain power to accomplish all of those things together. Um, and then again, you're marketing something that is not a need, right? It's a luxury. It's not a need. It's not a necessity. And so you layer all those things on top of each other, and it's it's difficult. So I would say that the thing to do if what you want to do is is turn a profit is um, don't, don't look around at all the razzle-dazzle and, and be confused by that. And then also make sure that you are paying good money for the right team members in the right places.
0: You know, and I think you make a really good point is that, you know, a seven-year uh, long-term strategy just to get into the profit uh, picture is, is not what most businesses today I mean business today is is there's so much pressure to be successful fast and turn a profit and return money to shareholders and you know uh, quarterly earnings and all that stuff it's just a totally different mindset it sounds like
1: yeah yeah absolutely
0: so uh tell me about Vital Winery and and what are you trying to do with this uh, non-profit business uh, that you have as well
1: yeah. Well, I have been in the wine industry since I was 18. So my entire adult life, and then some, I've made alcohol, <laughs> <laughs> which is a lot of fun for me. And, you know, it's not just alcohol. One would hope that it's something beautiful, right? Um, and but, but still, I am at a point where I needed to make sure that I knew I had done something to make the world a better place, other than just sort of create something artistic. Um, and I grew up in a in a bicultural, bilingual household. Um, and so, to backtrack, Vital is a nonprofit winery whose goal and mission is to improve access to healthcare for vineyard workers and and winery workers in our local community. And so we take all donated goods, grapes, corks, capsules, bottles, labels, graphic design work, shipping supplies, you name it, and we make wine and then we send all of those profits from those wine sales to improving access to healthcare. So that has meant um, either donating to a local free clinic called the SOS Clinic, which is an open door, bilingual, no questions asked healthcare clinic, um, or during the pandemic, we handed out cash to vineyard workers who wanted to stay home for a day if somebody had tested positive on their crew. Um, a lot of these people carpooled to work together, a lot of these people live together in multi generational households. Um, and so the Latino community and, and really the farming and the meat packing and the canning communities throughout the United States were the ones that were hit the hardest and, and earliest and most frequently when you look at how COVID spread. And so being able to pay those hourly workers their normal wage to, to not come into work for a day, uh, was pretty cool. And then the, the, Latest iteration was once the vaccine was available. We started a texting program in Spanish to alert people of um, sort of gossip, right? Like, there's a clinic over here, and there are more vaccines available at 4 p.m. Or, um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the mass clinics that were really doing an effective job of giving out vaccines in our community were run by the national uh, army guard and they wear uniforms. And so sending out information about the fact that those are not uniforms that are, you know, la migra, that are going to kick you out of the country uh, was really important. Um, so little, you know, little tidbits to try to even the playing field a bit. What, what we saw in our local small town is that the people who got the vaccine first were the people who were living next door to the doctors, so it wasn't just a K economy coming out of this; it was a K everything, right? The the haves were having more, and the have-nots were having less.
0: Yeah, well, I think the the pandemic and then the uh, the immigration policies of of this country uh, um, are, have just really put a, a big um, a big strain on the agriculture. Uh, world that we live in, and and wines are certainly a part of that. So, have you seen a? Uh, is it harder to get your product, and harder to to get people to to move the product and, and do what they do out in the fields?
1: It can be. There are certainly ebbs and flows. I think. Um, I, I think what you, where you really feel the crunch as a winemaker uh, in a in a town of 175 small wineries is really more when we get these massive early first frosts, you know, that are a big surprise. Um, Then truly everybody has a need at the exact same time. Um, But generally um, where it's really helpful to be a small winery um, and and going back to the the female thing, maybe, I don't know. I'm I'm extrapolating here, but I, I think to sort of, call up the phone and say, can you please just pick two tons, right? That's not 50 tons. Two tons sounds, maybe sounds big. Two tons is not big um, in the grand scheme of things. So that's a hundred cases of wine. Um, so to make that phone call and, and just say, just sneak us in, right? Like it start 30 minutes earlier, start an hour earlier, or go an hour later. Can you, can you do that? The answer is usually yes. Um, but for the for the massive wineries um that's where they really feel that immigration push and pull um and so yeah you know i i'm a little bit shielded from that just from being a a small winemaker but it's um it certainly is affected politically um and it's and it's affected by weather as well and, and where we get those frosts and how early and how extreme. Um, so, yeah, it's it's complicated.
0: Well, it's so impressive, actually. I mean, the, the fact that you're giving back to that community and raising money and taking care of uh, those, uh, uh, you know, less advantaged people, it's, it's impressive. And so I, I commend you for that. Uh, congratulations for for helping out in that way.
1: Well, it's not that impressive. <laughs> <It's>,
0: <laughs> I'd give yourself some credit now. That's
1: no, it's just you know, it's you just do the thing that should be done, right? I mean, it, it's it's all doable. You just go do it. Just focus on it and, and do it.
0: Now, you mentioned that you grew up in a, a bicultural, bilingual family. Tell us a little bit about that. <sighs>
1: Yeah. So uh, my mom was a little bit out of the picture and, um, my dad worked a lot. And so I was kind of raised by a babysitter. Um, and she's, um, yeah, she, she raised me. So I spoke Spanish more than I did English in in my house. And, um, uh, yeah, I'm the only 40 year old I know who still has a babysitter. So I call her every Tuesday and, she was my matron of honor in my in my wedding. She gave me away and um That's, yeah, awesome. It's That's a, awesome. It's a special thing.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. Now you've certainly captured the attention of the wine world. Um Wine Enthusiast magazine has put you in their top forty under forty list and wine industry advisors has put you on their list of the most inspiring people in the wine industry. Do you feel uh, embraced by by the the sometimes I guess arrogant or old boys network that uh, that the wine industry can be sometimes?
1: Oh, um, yeah, sure. I mean, I I think um, I think there are different ways to to embrace somebody. Um, I think that the wine industry realizes how do I say this uh I think when you have an all-male crew on a crush crew even they would say it's bad (laughs)
0: Uh, yeah
1: it's a bad idea right like we all it goes too far right, um, and uh there's just too much sort of competitiveness and yelling and brutality, and everybody's cranky, and you're working a million hours and it's physical,, man, it's bad and um and so, when you sort of make that effort to get more females as part of those crews, everybody immediately realizes that this was a good. Choice. Having said that, it goes back to some of those small things like those ladies are probably going to be the last to get a nickname. You know what I mean? Like guys, when they're sort of bro brawn, it's it's all one playing field, and so you can you can make those deep, deep joking bro bra fun connections very quickly because it's all known. Whereas when you've got women, it's, it's a slower role. And I think the wine industry is, is very much like that. I think a lot of the people within the industry understand why it's so important to mix it up a little bit and get women in there and appreciated. But at the same token, I think when everybody really lets loose and is being themselves, it tends to be um, in less mixed company. So 'll it'll, it'll just take a little while for enough wine writers to be female enough wine producers to be female um, enough women to notice that they are the ones buying the majority of the wines in the country because women consumers do not know this about themselves and should. women buy 70% of the wines in the nation and have no idea that they're doing it wow. and what I keep yeah and when I keep yelling at all these ladies for, when I do these zoom calls and they don't know I'm about to yell at them is that you need to just keep doing it when other people are looking. So women don't hold the menu in, in restaurants and they aren't given the menu in restaurants. And when there's mixed company at the table, women do not order for the table, which drives me up the wall. That's really
0: interesting. That's so true. They order,
1: Yeah. They order 70% of the wines nationwide that's not 51 yeah 70 and so just keep doing it when other people are looking that's that's my my broken record
0: no that that's that's great well, what part of your life uh do you, you enjoy the most running the business or making the wine
1: oh i really i like both i would be that, i've had the opportunity to grow the winery a lot longer bigger than it is. And I have not wanted to do that because then you would be forced to make that choice. And I I don't want to make that choice. I really enjoy doing
0: both. And how would you describe your leadership style with your team?
1: (laughs) I need to be a better leader. Um, I'm trying very hard to, for a long time, I, I wouldn't delegate things. And I would have these incredibly helpful staff members who were just waiting (laughs) to be helpful, and I wouldn't let them. Um, And I've learned over the years to be a better delegator um, and to be a better communicator. But, um, yeah, I, um, I tend to really enjoy working with a small team where we know each other really, really well that for me is a huge part of the fun. Um, and like you said, you know, it's, it's not a business you get into to make big money. So if we're not making big money, we might as well have fun along the way. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't my leadership style. I, it's a good question. I, I would say that I'm, um, friendly and flamboyant and hectic and exciting, which is <laughs> leads a little wiggle room for improvement I think, and organizations.
0: Well, yeah, maybe improvement, but also uh, fun, as you said, and exciting and, and you know, uh, passion. So that's that those are all things that people uh, are drawn to as well. So that, that's that's great. What's the toughest lesson you've uh, learned as a businesswoman?
1: Um, slower is better (laughs) sometimes, not with everything, but, um, it's, it's very hard, uh, for me to, uh, how do I say this? Um, with wine and with how we look at financial models and how we decorate the tasting room and, what we're doing with the website, and what events we say yes or no to, and how many distributors we work with—all um, of those things. The likelihood is that you're not going to get the right answer the first time, right? You're not going to just do the thing and then it's done. And my personality is very much do the thing, right? And so, taking that time to go through and do that second and third and fourth pass. And having the patience and and the interest in the minutiae to to do those second and third and fourth passes so that it really is done, that is what does not come naturally to me that that is needed and i've i 've gotten so much better at that over the years, but I would say that
0: and that's uh, you know that self awareness is so important and uh, you know, in business and leadership is to know, you know, how you are and, and what you need to improve on and, and having the the patience to get there so that, that you, you described that very well. What is the one thing that if you, if this were to happen, would bring you the most joy?
1: God, what a good question. What, the one thing that were to happen were to bring me the most joy. Oh,
0: I put you on the spot. I didn't, I know aside from
1: <laughs> aside from just chocolate falling from the sky at all times. <laughs>
0: um,
1: what would that be? Uh, gosh, you know, I think, um, I think to, to tell you the truth, having, um, having a team that never went away, uh, is probably the answer to that. Um, with with real life everybody everybody has their own needs so like for example right now um our tasting room manager his dream is to start his own winery one day right and um amen good on but that means we're, we're gonna lose him someday right? And I don't think that's tomorrow, but it's, it's at some point. And, um, we have so many fun people who come through and help us in the tasting room on Saturdays and they're college students and go off and get their MBA later, or go, you know, move on with life. And so you have, you have this natural loss of people, um, and it's understandable, but I think if if you could just wave a magic wand and we've had any number of iterations of dream teams over the last five years, but we've we've had to lose them because they don't want to live in Walla for the rest of their lives, or they don't want to work in a tasting room only on Saturdays for the rest of their lives. That that would be the one magical thing I would love to see happen is you could you could have this team for forever or for 10 years or 20 years and, and just sort of have that be not a rotating thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's great. I'm, I'm sure a Chuck still mourning your loss. So, uh, that, well, that,
1: Chuck, Chuck and I do, we do still touch base every, every birthday. And he is somebody who, I mean, I think you're right. I think he's, he's somebody who he and I, um, just really, um, respect and and admire and appreciate each other and um it's exciting to for him to see he comes and buys my wine you know it's exciting for him to see what I'm doing and I I do the same for him and we touch base all the time um so yeah
0: well I think that he saw in you early um uh something that just really he, he he admired because I is in the intro of this interview, I, I tell the story that uh, the first time I met you, I think you were probably like 21 years old. And I was over there at Chuck Reiniger's, um, winery. And he said, you got to meet this woman. And he said, she's going to be, she's amazing. And she's going to do great things in the wine world. And look at this, all these years later, he was right on. He knew. Oh, yeah. yeah. Chuck. Uh, so, uh, at this time in the interview, Ashley, I usually ask, uh, the same question to all my guests. So, uh, if you could leave us with a pearl of wisdom, what would that be?
1: <laughs> oh, um, uh, as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, I think the, the pearl of wisdom. And I tried very hard to teach my nine-year-old daughter this, and I'm not sure it stuck yet. Um is try to figure out how to make the problem yours, right? Because if you make the problem yours, then you've now seized control of the situation and you can solve it the way you want to solve it. Um, and uh, I think there's something incredibly powerful about having the, the humility that will buy you that opportunity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great advice. So what's, uh, what's the future of Brook and bowl and what's the future of, uh, your career? What, what big things do you have in mind? Can you share anything with us that you're looking forward to?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. We, I would love to, um, build, build out a tasting room and a winery for Broken and bowl and we're, and we haven't started that, but that's a, that's a goal that I'd love to get to. Um, that we can call our own. Um, but I think really for the next year, um, we've had a lot of transition at vital. We've, we were finally able to hire its first executive director. And, um, I think there are a lot of learning opportunities and ways for vital to expand beyond just the bottlenecking that is me. Um, and so i think the next year is is going to be focused a lot on vital and, and how we create this um, much more official much larger much more efficient nonprofit that that isn't just this idea in in my head but is a full-fledged company so we'll be working on um, on doing that and hiring a, a promotor de salud which is somebody who we're hiring in conjunction with Providence Hospital to go out into the community and um, sort of deal with the low-hanging fruit, right? Like, are there people who need education on diabetes? Is there somebody who needs some preventative care in some format and, and they're not getting it? Or, um, you know, getting a mobile unit up and running to be able to go to these vineyards where people don't own their own cars or aren't going to ask for the time off from their boss because that's just generally not done so those are the things that i'd like to launch in the next couple of years
0: and do you find that you're getting uh some support from your uh winemaker colleagues and in the area are are people um are you getting some momentum to to get them on board as well
1: oh it's been incredible yeah no it's not not hard at all um people have been jumping at the opportunity to be a part of vital and um i'm really grateful for that
0: yeah, That's awesome. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for taking the time and talking with us today. Uh, yeah, you're a breath of fresh air. It's, you're just somebody that's uh, fun to talk to and fun to be around. And, and I'm so excited for your success in the, in the wine business and uh, wish you uh, uh, all your great dreams to come true. So thanks so much for uh, doing what you do. And, uh, oh, by the way, I didn't mention this, but your wine is delicious, it is fabulous. And uh, as a, I know you won't do it because you're too humble, but I'll give a, a, a little advertisement here Buy Brook and Bull wine. It's amazing.
1: Thanks. Well, thank you for having me. This was, is was a lot of fun. And those were some damn good questions. All
0: right. Take care, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website. Orange.coaching.com, and that is orange the word.coaching.com, and go to the Media Center and click on Podcasts or Video Gallery. You can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com.